HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby, broadcast live to the cosmos on the Heritage Radio Network. Good Sunday to you, and welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Anne Saxelby. Our show today is being produced and engineered by Jack Inslee, and it is being sponsored by Cabot Creamery, one of our favorite cheese producers uh, in the Northeast. Um, So, today on Cutting the Curd, I am going to endeavor to do something that I have never done before, which is do the entire half-hour episode of the show by myself talking about a subject that I love a lot, uh, which is milk. Um, Throughout Cutting the Curd, we've done a lot of talking about cheese, but we haven't talked quite as much about milk, which is, you know, obviously the raw material that cheese comes from and really the raw raw material that we as humans owe so much to. Um, So I don't pretend that I'm any kind of expert on the subject, but I do want to share with you some interesting things that I've gleaned throughout the course of just reading and conversation and uh, exploration that I've done on my own. So milk is, of course, any mammal's first source of food. It contains all the nutrients we need to survive throughout those crucial first months of life. Um, And uh, I feel like here, right at the beginning of the show, would be the appropriate moment to get it over with and tell you the really embarrassing story of my first revelation about milk and and cheese and, you know, how milk, uh, uh, you know, is necessary for the production of cheese. Um, Well, I knew that milk was necessary for the production of cheese, but what I didn't know is that a cow had to have a baby in order to give milk. Now, this seems pretty obvious to me in retrospect, but... Uh, it was pretty hilarious. I, I was uh, on my way up to Cato Corner Farm, which is where I spent uh, six months doing an internship as a cheesemaker after I graduated from college. And as we were driving up to the farm from the Union Square Green Market, um, Mark Gilman, who's the cheesemaker there, and Christina, who was the intern at the time, were talking about um, all the cows freshening. And this was, you know, talk about just like new world. I, I was, you know, an art student that was going up there to make cheese. I had no idea what they were talking about. And I was like, freshening, freshening, what, what's that all about? 
And they're like, oh, yeah, that's like, you know, the farm terminology for when a cow gives, you know, birth and starts to produce milk. And I was like, holy crap. I did not put (laughs) two and two together that a cow had to have a baby to give milk. So, um, so there you go. That was my, that was my beginning, uh, uh, introductory crash course into the world of dairy farming and cheese making. Um, but of course, you know, it's normal for any mammal to drink milk in its infancy, but pretty, you know, pretty strange if you think about it for animals to use it for food later in life. And especially when it comes from an animal that is a different species than, you know, than yourself. Um, now, obviously, animals in the wild don't have the opportunity to do this, to, to try to drink milk or, or make anything of it later in life. I imagine that they would be kicked, you know, quite literally out of their herds if, uh, you know, the, the adult, whatever, reindeer was caught trying to suckle off the mother reindeer. I think, you know, that would be a, a Discovery Channel no-no. Um, but ancient humans were kind of quick to discover the benefits of milk products uh, in their diets. And, uh, and this was, you know, beyond, of course, you know, infancy. And these milk products were primarily of the fermented variety because um, it is difficult for most humans in the world to digest um, liquid, fluid milk after infancy. Um, so nobody knows quite when humans first started milking animals and using their milk for sustenance. But it's guessed that it started around 10,000 B.C., in the area where modern-day Iran is located. And um, the first animals uh, that humans tried to milk certainly weren't cows. Uh, they were much smaller and therefore easier to control and a little bit less dangerous. Uh, sheep and goats were the most popular dairy animals in ancient times and really continue to be throughout most of the world today. Um, humans work their way up to cows sort of gingerly as they are quite huge and, and sometimes uh, unruly, unruly beasts. Um, you know, this train of thought continues. I was thinking about my own, uh, my own aspirations of, uh, cheese making. And even I was thinking about that. And I, I was thinking to myself, if I ever become a cheese maker, I want to milk goats because there's something about goats and sheep actually, that is just much more manageable in my brain than trying to manage a giant, you know, a giant cow. Um, So, uh, you know, they eventually, humans eventually made their way to cows uh, in order to to get milk uh, in greater quantities. Um, But, uh, you know, all these animals have something in common. Uh, Goats, sheep, cows, um, actually, you know, even uh, camels, uh, yaks, buffalo. Um, They're all ruminant animals. And uh, I've gotten the question many times uh, throughout the course of my my cheese-mongering career, why can't you make cheese from pig's milk or, you know, insert animal name. Why can't you make cheese from blank, blank milk? Um, and that's because, you know, ruminants are different than omnivores. Uh, we humans are omnivores, pigs and other animals, um, are omnivores as well. And, uh, so our, our diet and our digestive system probably wouldn't lead to very tasty, uh, tasty milk products. Um, so the flavor would probably be off, but um, if you think about it anatomically as well, trying to milk a pig, I mean, I would dare anybody listening to this show to, to try and milk a pig, and I guarantee you it would not be <laughs> a very pleasant experience. Um, ruminant animals tend to have longer legs. They stand higher off the ground, and uh, therefore they're easier for humans to milk. Um, and because they only have maybe one or two or three babies at the most, that means that they only have, um, you know, 
they have fewer teats, basically, and those teats are longer, so they're easier for humans to, you know, grab onto and, and try and uh, actually squeeze some milk out of them. Um, so these ruminants are pretty fascinating creatures um, that milk comes from. Uh, the word ruminant actually comes from the Latin word ruminare, meaning to chew over again, which is really exactly what they do. Uh, ruminant animals are herbivores that are that are subsisting primarily on grass. And through their unique digestive systems, they're able to eke nutrition from grass and other fibrous plant material that we humans aren't able to digest. Um, what makes a ruminant uh, sort of unique is the fact that they have four stomachs. Uh, they have the rumen, the reticulum, the omasum, and the abomasum. So basically, a ruminant animal eats grass. From there, it's passed into their rumen, which is full of microbes. And the solid parts of the food are separated from the liquids. The solid part of that fibrous, grassy plant material is what's known as the cud. Um, it's, it's fermented just slightly and then regurgitated to be chewed a second time and further broken down. Uh, fiber, protein, and carbohydrates are fermented and all broken down in the rumen. The food then makes its way through the omasum, where water and more of the nutrients are absorbed into the bloodstream, and the abomasum, which is much like our own stomach, um, where the food is sort of broken down and digested further and then passed on into the intestines. Um, I remember when I was in high school, uh, one, of my, one of my good friends, uh, they had a beef cattle farm. And, um, and I was walking around the farm with um, my friend's younger sister, Allie, and, uh, and the cows were all sitting around chewing their cud. And, she, and I was like, what are they chewing on? And she said, it's their cud. And, and I asked her, I was like, well, what's the cud? And she was like, well, I don't know. It's their cud. Um, <laughs> so I feel very satisfied that, um, let's see, 15 years later, I've, I've finally figured out what the heck um, cud is and how it plays into this whole <laughs> uh, ruminant animal milk producing machine that we're talking about today. So, you know, getting back to sort of the history of um, humans and dairying, it made sense for nomadic people to use their ruminant animals for both milk products as well as meat. Um, if you think about it just in a really practical way, it takes a long time and a lot of forage for an animal to reach the weight it needs to be um, in order to be slaughtered for meat. And, uh, you know, the fact that humans can't digest grass, but ruminants can eat that grass and convert it to a usable foodstuff like milk was a big was a big bonus, especially for nomadic people that didn't have access to um, a lot of different variety of foods. So they were kind of quick to realize that if you could keep your animals and breed them, not only would you have more babies to raise up each year, but you'd have a steady supply of milk to turn into more stable fermented um, food products that could sustain them, you know, throughout most of the year. And, uh, and then, you know, of course, the slaughter of animals and, and meat was kind of more of a treat uh, um, in, in their diets. So now to get back to the question of, you know, why goats and sheep and not cows were the most popular uh, dairying animals, we already talked about the size issue. That's, you know, an obvious one. Um, cows, you know, I can't even imagine what the first person who was decided that they were going to tame a cow and milk it, what they had running through their head. That must have been, uh, yeah, one, one brave, <laughs> brave dude. Um, but it, it, it actually also is linked to the, uh, the climate of that area that we were talking about, the sort of modern day Middle East where dairying first started. Um, 
goats and sheep are more suited to the sort of the wide arid plains that, uh, you know, that sort of populated the, the um, vegetation at that time. Um, you know, they're pretty, goats and sheep are pretty scrappy animals. Um, they're kind of wily and they can really survive on, on anything. Um, they're really good foragers, browsers, and, um, they can, they can eat a lot of different things and convert all that plant material into milk. Um, I'm sure if you've ever seen pictures of mountain goats and sheep, you you have an idea of what I'm talking about. I mean, they're like perched on like a single rock, like 5,000 feet above sea level where there's like a sprig of grass growing and they just munch that and then hop on to the next thing. Um, Cows, on the other hand, are much more sort of luxury loving animals. Um, They need stable temperatures, um, you know, which of course the hot desert wasn't, uh, wasn't going to provide them. They need more even terrain for the most part. Um, though there are certain breeds of cows that can go up high into the mountains and, and forage there. Um, they also need lots of water and lots of grass to eat. So cow dairying really took hold more in the Northern European countries as well as, um, you know, in, uh, Uh, other parts of the world like Southeast Asia where there was more water, more access to grass um, and uh, things of that nature. So at this point, we know that the production of milk is definitely linked to climate uh, for the reasons that we just discussed, but um, milk production is also linked to climate for a few other reasons. Uh, One is that Uh, you know, milk production is linked to what the baby needs to survive in its habitat. Um, The actual composition of milk changes really drastically from species to species, depending on what kind of nutrients the animal needs. Um, In Harold Harold McGee's book on food and cooking, there is an absolutely genius chart which shows some of the components found in the milk of various mammals, um, some of which are ruminants and some of which are not. Um, and in the chart, cows and goats are the most similar, uh, with about, and and this is all based on, on the weight of the milk, how it breaks down percentage wise. Um, so cows and goats have about 4% fat, 3% protein and 4% lactose, which is the sugar found in milk. Um, human milk also has about 4% fat. Um, is slightly lower in protein uh, at just about 1%, but has almost 7% lactose. So human milk is really, really sugary. And later in the show, we'll discuss a little bit about um, why uh, it's thought that, you know, human milk sugar performs different tasks in the body. Um, Sheep and yaks are slightly higher on the fat and protein count. Uh, They're around 7% fat and 6% protein, which makes for really, really wonderful dairy products. Um, and so, you know, our, our climates are diverse, but they're still related to one another. Uh, and, uh, you know, all of the, the animals that I just listed are all, uh, land mammals. And, um, the reason I would even go so far as to make this distinction is that, um, you know, other mammals such as, you know, mammals that live in the water, like whales and seals, um, their climactic needs are different than, than ours, um, all of those animals need to develop a really thick layer of blubber on their uh, on their young ones, and so um, 
uh, the last the last uh, line on Harold McGee's chart is the fin whale, and um, the fin whale. Now remember, humans, goats, cows, sheep were you know sort of in the four to seven percent fat range. Fin whales have forty two percent fat in their milk and just forty three percent water. So it, it's pretty wild. Um, Mother Nature really kind of nailed it when it comes to what kind of milk would be most suited uh, to each type of animal. Um, and there is actually, uh, there is one more thing that, uh, that makes milk tied to climate. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about that, but I think really quickly we will take a short break on cutting the curd. And uh, when we come back, we'll hit that last note. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, I'm your host, Ann Saxelby. The show today is being produced and engineered by uh, Jack Inslee and sponsored by Cabot, Cabot Co-op in Vermont. Uh, and so our, uh, our music there, <laughs> I just decided, I was like, what music has anything to do with milk? And yodeling was the first thing that came to mind because, I don't know, they do it up in the Swiss mountains and, and yodeling's funny. We don't hear it all the time. So <laughs> anyways, uh, today on the show, we're talking about milk, our first food and, um, you know, just sort of all of the mystery and intrigue and fascinating things about milk, um, you know, which seems to be appropriate on a, on a cheese based show. Um, so we were talking about milk being tied to milk production, being tied to, to climate and um, the last reason that milk is tied to climate, or maybe not the last, but the last we're going to talk about today, is, um, is seasonality in, uh, in just the world of, of nature. Um, animals are very seasonal when it comes to breeding, giving birth, and milk production. Um, this has been sort of toyed with to varying degrees throughout the industrialization of our food process. But, um, you know, back in the day, Mother Nature would have it that, you know, that season or birth of uh, young is is very tied to seasonality um you know most animals again whales <laughs> the whales i was talking about before are the exception they give birth in the winter time but um the, most animals are meant to give birth in the springtime when the forage is uh is plentiful for milk producing moms and so the babies have a better chance of not of course you know having an untimely death by by being too cold um the production of milk in the mother when she's pregnant is actually triggered by hormonal changes within her system that activate a network of tissues in, in the mammary gland, uh, which are then, you know, of course activated when the baby's born and they start to suckle. Um, in rereading Ann Mendelssohn's book, Milk, the surprising story of milk throughout the ages. Uh, and I guess I should say that Anne was actually on this show. It was one of my very first episodes. So if you want to hear more about Anne Mendelssohn and her fascinating research, you can check out an old episode of Cutting the Curd where she appears. Um, but her book is really fascinating. And I was reading it again, and I was very struck by the fact that she describes milk straight from the mother to the infant 
be it you know human goat cow or fin whale as uh, as more of a living tissue uh, kind of like almost like blood as uh, than anything else um, so milk is kind of you know a part of of the human body it's not really a fluid that's that's separate from it um, which is kind of a wild thing to, to wrap your head around but um, uh, I was reading a little bit more in uh, Harold McGee's book um, and he is kind of the consummate researcher when it comes to food products of all types and um, in his book when he talks about the evolution of milk and I'm going to just read a little bit directly he says that milk may have begun around 300 million years ago as a protective and nourishing skin secretion for hatchlings being incubated on their mother's skin as is still true for the platypus today um which, you know, is, is really wild. You, you think about where it comes from. It's not like, you know, the udder fills up with milk like a balloon. It's actually a very intense sort of network of uh, tiny little, um, little lobes that come out and, and form this milk directly from, from the tissue. Um, so, and this, of course, is meant to be transmitted directly from mother to baby. Um, we humans started keeping it for other reasons, uh, you know, to, to make this wide range of fermented dairy products. And um, as soon as it's out of the animal and into a vessel of any kind, um, it starts to change in ways that, that allowed humans to make the incredible range of dairy products um, that are used you know, by cultures throughout the entire world. Um, but so milk is really a dynamic living substance that really changes throughout the course of an animal's lactation cycle. It changes from week to week, day to day, morning to evening, and even from the beginning to the end of each milking, the composition of the milk is, is different. Um, Ann Mendelssohn, again, talks about both the first and last drops of milk from, uh, you know, from an animal's udder when being milked. The first and last drops are much higher in fat than anything in between, um, which I found kind of fascinating. Um, so all milk, when an animal first gives birth begins as a substance called colostrum. And this substance hardly resembles regular milk, if you were to look at the two in, in you know, glass jars and compare them. Uh, colostrum is meant to be the bridge between uh, you know, the baby being fed internally through the umbilical cord and being fed in the outside world. Uh, colostrum is thick and rich, and it's full of antibodies, which the mother transmits to her baby directly and, and really helps uh, kickstart its sort of nascent immune system. Um, so that's uh, kind of fascinating that, that most babies get their first immunity from directly from what is in uh, you know, their mother's own immune system. Uh, so the baby will obviously continue to drink milk until it's able to start eating other foods. And it occurs at different times for different animals. For example, um, you know, baby cows or baby cows, uh, veal, ca veal calves and heifer calves will suckle longer than, say, um, lamb or kid goats. Um, but, you know, again, according to the cycle of nature, the babies are pretty much weaned by the end of the season um, so that when fall and winter starts coming around again um, and the food supply becomes a little bit scarce, the baby would be pretty much self-sufficient at that point and the mother could nourish herself as well. Because, after all, the production of milk puts a tremendous strain on the mother's body. 
And um, in some extreme cases, in an effort to produce enough milk for her babies, a mother, um, the dairy cow is the best example that I know, will actually start to leach calcium from her own bones um, to produce that milk, which has very detrimental health effects, of course, for the, for the mom. Um, so milk is still you know, sort of ill understood by most of the prominent scientists of, of our day. Um, we're talking about it being this dynamic living fluid. And though, you know, scientists know that it's obviously, you know, the perfect food to, to bring, uh, you know, baby into the world, they have yet to really break it down into all of its parts and isolate what all of those, um, you know, what each part of the milk actually does for a human's uh, or any kind of animal's physiology, um, which I find pretty fascinating. Um, I kind of I like that, actually. Something that can't be fully understood. I figure it's got to be full of, full of goodness that, uh, you know, um, just don't want to mess with it. You want to leave it as it is because whatever Mother Nature's doing, it, you know, is exactly what's right. Um, a good example of this is... Um, Last year, I read an article in the New York Times uh, about the benefits of, of breast milk. And uh, remember, earlier in the show, I was discussing that um, human milk has significantly higher amounts of lactose in it than does, say, cow's milk or sheep's milk or goat's milk. Um, and for years, uh, researchers dismissed this extra lactose as just that, extra lactose. They thought it didn't really have any nutritional benefit. They couldn't figure out what it was doing for the baby. And so they just kind of, you know, dismissed it as that. But um, this article was fascinating because it was uh, talking about some researchers at um, University of California, Davis, uh, looking into the sort of looking into that lactose and, and seeing what was really going on with it. Because though that lactose can't be uh, digested by babies, um, it's found that actually the sugar or lactose was um, actually helping the infants to form the digestive flora and fauna necessary for babies to fight off harmful bacteria in their digestive systems. Um, so it's, you know, pretty pretty fascinating stuff. In short, we don't know, we still don't know a whole lot about the complexity of milk and we, and you know, exactly what makes it so wonderfully nourishing. Um, I was actually just, uh, doing a, a, a cheese training with one of my cheese mentors, uh, last week. And his name is, uh, Hervé Mons. He's an affineur from the Auvergne region of France. And, um, he, he was, uh, we were talking about milk and in this, in this instance, we were talking more about raw versus pasteurized milk, but we were talking about milk and, and microbes. And, um, you know, his, his comment was, it's really the world of, of microbes that really gives life to our planet and, and makes everything, uh, sort of survive in a symbiotic way. Um, and I, I found that, you know, to be just entirely fascinating. So, um, to conclude on the show, I think one last interesting thing to talk about, uh, you know, in the world of milk is the fact that milk has been associated in creation myths throughout the world from Scandinavia to India and, and beyond. And, um, I want to take some time to sort of, uh, give some quotes and examples of, um, how milk has come to be associated with, uh, with creation. Um, because in the end, you know, as we've, as we've, as we've discussed throughout the show today, milk really is 
life. It's our first uh, it's our first food in the world, and it's what allows us to survive. And so it's taken a prominent place in um, religions uh, throughout the world that you know, are, are sometimes at odds with each other. <laughs> Milk seems to be the, one of the only things that people can agree on. Um, so first I'll return to Ann, Ann Mendelssohn's book, which is uh, entitled Milk, The Surprising Story of Milk Throughout the Ages, um, for a couple examples. Um, she has here a Brahmin creation myth. Um, and in, her, in the book it says, Brahmins have long cherished an image of the cow as a crown jewel in a complex prohibition fence scheme of beliefs about the ritual purity or pollution of food. In this worldview, she is helping the wellspring of life in palpable form, inexhaustibly pouring forth the miracle of milk, a holy substance considered to have been purified by inner fires in the grass-transforming alembic that is the cow's body. Um, and then she says, in fact, a Hindu creation myth describes a primordial sea of milk as the stuff from which many great gifts of the world were churned under the direction of Vishnu. So that is the, the Hindu creation myth example. Um, there are also different um, Jewish um, and kosher traditions with regards to milk. Of course, uh, we all know that uh, kosher law prohibits that uh, milk and meat are consumed together. Um, so Ann Mendelssohn says, no one else has any particular religious motivation for exploiting various uses of milk. Observant Jews, however, were required to prepare either meat or milk meals with no mixing of the two. Not only were the milk meals cheaper, but it was easier to turn milk into a range of delicious forms. So um, they were talking about uh, cross-contamination of food probably in ancient times, but they were also talking about uh, what we were talking about before. Milk being a more uh, cheap and readily available food substance for people who don't have uh, you know, don't have tons of options when it comes to food, um, or who didn't at that time. Um, so, and then there's examples of milk and cheese in, uh, in actually going back to the Old Testament as symbols of abundance and creation. Uh, so I'm going to go back to Harold McGee's book, um, to discuss that. Um, he says... That, uh, oh, the, the quote, this is classic. God to Moses on Mount Horeb, right? <laughs> That's uh, one everybody knows. It says, uh, I am come down to deliver my people out of the hands of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, and then uh, in the book of Job in the Bible, it also says, Hast thou not poured me out as milk and curdled me like cheese? What a quote. Back, going going back in the day, um, so you, you know they milk plays a part in creation myths. It also plays a part in other um, traditions, uh, you know, regarding food and and eating rituals. Um, we discussed a little bit the kosher one, um, and then you know certainly in Christianity, it's a tradition to have milk-fed lamb or goat at Easter time, um, which you know is a diet that was actually linked to the scarcity of food again in the winter and celebrate the, you know, rebirth and life that was given to the world in the springtime when, um, you know, all the animals would have their young and the milk would start to flow. So 
we've just kind of scratched the scratched the surface, but uh, I find milk to be an incredibly fascinating topic, and hopefully we can uh, have some uh, some experts uh, on the show with us at a later date to talk about it in greater detail. But for uh, for right now, I'm I. Uh, I, th- I think I picked the right profession. Seems like milk is a pretty uh, is a pretty secure, <laughs> pretty secure thing in the world of uh, humans and food. And um, I hope that uh, all of our listeners out there have found this show to be informative, if not wild and crazy and hilarious. So, um, thank you for joining us on this episode of Cutting the Curd, and we'll be with you You're next week. To Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxby. Listening to Cutting the Curd. Hosted by Ann Saxelby.